the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today we'll uh, hear from Rachel Gresler. She's a research fellow in economics, budget, and entitlements. We'll talk about the United Auto Workers strike um, and whether or not uh, how it's being carried out and those previous to it uh, reflect a declining power of the unions. We'll also hear from Samuel Hakim from Redeeming the Nations. Taking a look at some of the headlines, the attorneys representing the whistleblower at the Center of Democrats' impeachment inquiry acknowledged in a statement on Wednesday that their client has come into contact with presidential candidates from both parties, but insisted the contact involved the politicians' role as elected officials, not as candidates. Mark Zaid and Andrew ba- um, Bakaj uh, asserted in their statement that the whistleblower has never worked for or advised a political candidate, campaign, or party, leaving open the possibility that the whistleblower advised a current 2020 Democratic presidential candidate prior to their run for office. The lawyer's disclosure came shortly after the Washington Examiner reported that Intelligence Community Inspector General Michael Atkinson told lawmakers the whistleblower worked or had some type of professional relationship with one of the Democratic presidential candidates, citing three sources familiar with the Atkinson interview with lawmakers on Friday. And President Trump on Wednesday told reporters that he would cooperate with a formal impeachment inquiry if there is a House vote on the investigation and if Democrats commit to rules he believes are fair. Trump also said Republicans must get a fair shake. Former Vice President Joe Biden, for the first time, called for the impeachment of President Trump over the Ukrainian controversy. According to a Fox News poll released on Wednesday, just over half of voters want the president impeached and removed from office. A new high of 51 percent wants Trump impeached and removed. Uh, Another 4 percent want him impeached but not removed. And 40 percent oppose impeachment altogether. And in an interview on Hannity, Trump's son Eric noted that former President Barack Obama had been uh, conspicuously silent regarding the links between Ukraine and former Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter. He's the only guy who's hiding, Eric Trump said of Obama. I mean, Joe Biden was his vice president. Where is Obama? What does he think about the rampant corruption? End quote. Turkish ground forces pressed their advantage against Kurdish fighters in northern Syria on Thursday. Turkey's defense ministry said launching airstrikes and unleashing artillery shelling of Syrian towns and villages uh, the length of its border. The latest development comes as at least seven civilians and three members of the Kurdish-led force, known as the Syrian Democratic Force, were among the first reported deaths on Wednesday after Turkey announced that its ground forces invaded northeastern Syria to fight against Kurdish forces. The ground offensive was part of a wave of initial attacks in the region after President Trump announced the U.S. would withdraw American troops from that area. Turkish President um, Erdogan said the mission was to neutralize terror threats against Turkey and lead to the establishment of a safe zone, facilitating the return of Syrian refugees to their home. After Erdogan announced the offensive, the president called the operation a bad idea. Later on Wednesday, he said he didn't want to be involved in endless, senseless wars. 
end quote. The president told reporters Wednesday that he would do far more than sanctions against Turkey if the country didn't act in the most humane way as possible and that he hoped Erdogan would actually act rationally. When asked what would happen if Erdogan wiped out the Kurds, Trump threatened to wipe out Turkey's economy, saying he had done it once before. A former NBC News employee whose allegations against Matt Lauer went public for the first time Wednesday posted a Twitter message later in the day thanking those who supported her decision to come forward with her story. Brooke Nevels, 35 now, who claims Lauer assaulted her in a hotel room in 2014 at the Winter Olympics in Sochi, Russia, also excoriated Lauer in a letter to NBC News calling his written denial of her allegations a case study in victim blaming. Lauer, who was fired from NBC News for sexual misconduct in 2017, is accused of sex crimes reported in graphic detail in journalist Ronan Farrow's upcoming book, Catch and Kill. Lauer, in a letter provided by Fox News by his lawyer, called the allegations false and said the uh, contact was consensual. The latest trade talks between the United States and China may have cooled before they even started. Originally set for today and Friday, the talks may only last one day. We're not quite sure yet. The delegation led by Vice Premier Liu will depart for China on Thursday at the conclusion of the talks. It's unclear why talks were shortened so close to the start. However, White House Deputy Press Secretary Judd Deere issued this statement saying we are not aware of a change in the vice premier's travel plans at this time. The largest utility company in California began its second wave of planned power outages to head off wildfire dangers from downed power lines this Wednesday evening, according to a report. Pacific Gas and Electric Company uh, delayed the outages planned for noon local time Wednesday in parts of Northern California until 7 p.m. Around 234,000 customers were expected to lose power in the second wave, Sacramento's um, KCRA-TV reports. Defense Intelligence Agency worker arrested on charges of leaking top secret information to reporters has been charged. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez joined Ted Cruz, Ben Sass, and others in a letter to the NBA condemning the league for betrayal of American values. ESPN is now bowing to China, uh, posts illegitimate propaganda map of communist Asian nation according to the Daily Wire, and that has uh, rankled many supporters. And Republican senators are pressing the Justice Department to pursue criminal charges against uh, women who made false rape accusations against Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh during his confirmation hearing last year. At least two of those uh, women uh, retracted their statements during that uh, confirmation period. And after a lull, Islamist terrorism in Europe has returned with a vengeance. And is this the last time we can celebrate Columbus Day? A wave of cities have decided to remove the holiday from the calendar and replace it with Indigenous Peoples Day, reports the Daily Signal's Jarrett Stepman. That now includes Washington, D.C., which was named after Christopher Columbus. On this day in 1913, the Panama Canal is effectively completed as President Woodrow Wilson sends a signal from the White House by telegraph, setting off explosives that deployed a section of the Gamboa Dyke. And on this day in 1962, President John F. Kennedy, responding to the thalidomide um, birth defects crisis, signs an amendment to the Federal Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act requiring pharmaceutical companies to prove that their products are safe and effective prior to marketing. 
On this day in 1964, the first Summer Olympics to be held in Asia are opened in Tokyo by Japanese Emperor Hirohito. On this day in 1967, the Outer Space Treaty, which prohibits the placing of weapons of mass destruction on the moon or elsewhere in space, enters into force. And on this day in 1973, Vice President Spiro Agnew, accused of accepting bribes, pleads no contest to one count of federal income tax evasion and resigns his office. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show coming up later in the program. We'll find out what's happening in um, Muslim countries and how the uh, ministry, Redeeming the Nations Ministries, is having an impact through the use of technology. Samuel Hakim will join me in the uh, uh, in this hour, we'll also hear from Rachel Gresler. She's a research fellow in economics, budget and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the ongoing UAW strike against GM and whether or not this uh, really signals the declining power of unions. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after four o'clock, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton accused Intelligence Community Inspector General Michael Atkinson of being evasive and obstructive during a closed-door hearing on the 26th of last month in which he refused to shed light on the potential political bias of a Trump whistleblower. Your disappointing testimony to the Senate Intelligence Committee on September 26th was evasive to the point of being insolent and obstructive, Cotton, who's a Republican member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, wrote on Wednesday to Atkinson. The uh, inspector general refused to discuss what he meant in an August 28th letter that said the whistleblower had an um, uh, indicia of an arguable political bias hmm, in favor of one of the president's uh, political rivals, a candidate for the White House. According to Cotton, he argued that information regarding possible bias is urgently relevant to determining whether the complaint is part of a well-coordinated partisan attack aimed at impeaching the president. Mark Zaid, a lawyer for the whistleblower, said on Twitter after Cotton released his letter that the questions about the whistleblower's alleged bias are intended to detract from the substance of the complaint. Well, House Democrats are using the complaint to fuel an impeachment inquiry of the president. The complaint centers on the president's July 25th phone call with Ukrainian President Zelensky. Cotton asserted that Atkinson said in his interview that he was prohibited from sharing details of the whistleblower's political bias with the Senate panel, but that there was one. But the Republican noted media reports indicating that Atkinson shared some of these details with the House Intelligence Committee during an interview on the 4th of October. Jake Tapper from CNN reported on that date that the possible bias was that the whistleblower was a registered Democrat. The Washington Examiner added a new wrinkle on Tuesday and reported Atkinson revealed that the whistleblower had a past professional relationship with a 2020 political candidate. And newly declassified court documents indicate that the FBI failed to comply with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, in targeting Americans while searching through NSA reports during President Trump's administration and after James Comey's tenure as FBI director. In October of 2018, in the ruling from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, um, found, they found that the FBI violated Section 702 by not keeping track of searches that pertain to United States persons and that proposed changes were still not enough to comply with the law. That ruling was later affirmed on appeal... In July of this year, the documents were declassified and released yesterday. 
FISA Section 702 deals with targeting people outside the United States for gathering foreign intelligence information, places restrictions on gathering information when it comes to Americans or people located in the United States. Because the FBI's proposed procedures do not require it to keep records that indicate whether terms are United States uh, person inquiry terms, the FISC, that's the FISA court, um, held that these procedures do not comply with the section, saying the decisions from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review, which heard the appeal. The queries examined uh, took place between 2017 and 2018, which would largely be during FBI Director Chris Ray's tenure and during the Trump presidency. The FBI did not immediately return a request for comment on the charges. Well, on Wednesday, President Trump signed two executive orders aimed at ensuring that Americans are not left in the dark regarding regulations. As he signed the two new directives, the president stated, we are reforming the bureaucracy to make it lean, responsive and accountable. And we're ensuring our laws are enforced fairly. Well, the first order entitled Bringing Guidance Out of the Darkness mandates all federal government agencies publish all regulatory guidelines, documents on easily searchable websites to allow Americans better access and input. The order further requires that the government permit citizens to give their input on these guidelines and insists that the public will have the ability to ask agencies to withdraw guidance they believe is wrong. The second order, titled Transparency and Fairness, prohibits government agencies from enforcing regulations that have not been made publicly known. Furthermore, citizens cannot be prosecuted based upon an agency's interpretation of how a statute or regulation applies to particular circumstances. Instead, citizens are legally liable only regarding the actual law or regulation. This is an important feature of this executive order. As the Wall Street Journal editorial board observes, recall how the Obama administration relied on guidance as a substitute for regulation. Why take the trouble of to issue formal rules with all that pesky public comment if the agency can post a memo setting out the policy it plans to pursue? In other words, an agency's regulatory guidance cannot supersede or replace the actual law or rule with which it is intended to help the public clarifying that uh, the law actually stands. Two associates of Rudy Giuliani, who have been linked to his investigations in Ukraine, have been indicted for campaign finance violations, according to court documents released today. Lev Parnas and Igor Furman uh, are accused of using a limited liability company to make political contributions related to American elections in violation of FEC pro, uh, prohibitions against contributions from foreign nationals. Both men have been linked to Giuliani's efforts to conduct investigations in Ukraine. The pair, who had no significant prior history of political donations, sought to advance their personal financial interests and the political interests of at least one Ukrainian government official with whom they are uh, were working. The indictment filed in Southern District of New York says a federal law enforcement source says that uh, Parnas and Furman were arrested Wednesday at Dulles International Airport in Virginia. Attorney General Bill Barr has been aware and supportive of the uh, officials and knew that both men would be arrested and charged Wednesday, a senior Justice Department official says. Giuliani told Fox News that he represents Parnas and Furman on a separate matter and call their arrest and indictment timing a suspect. He stated that he will reveal relevant facts very, very shortly. Giuliani is an attorney for the president, said he uh, finds it extremely suspicious that the arrest was made in connection with the FEC matter that is yet to be resolved in which 
uh, Giuliani was a civil, uh, said is a civil matter. Giuliani acknowledged that both men logistically helped in his collection of evidence against Hunter Biden and that they helped connect him with former Ukrainian top prosecutors, Viktor Shokin, and another prosecutor as well. The uh, pair created global energy producers and allegedly funneled money through the company. This included contributions of $325,000 and $15,000 to respectively to committees in May of 2018 to obtain access to exclusive political events and gain influence with politicians. They allegedly incorporated GEP around the time the contributions were made. We'll continue to follow that story. Well, the NBA has booted out fans for their pro Hong Kong signs and the chance to match. But the NBA doesn't kick out fans for chanting vulgarities. I guess one is more offensive to China than the other. Business Outsider writes the NBA's relationship with China, a market worth billions for the league, makes this controversy especially delicate and challenging to navigate. How Silver and the league attempt to resolve the issue will speak volumes. According to the Wall Street Journal, apparently the Chinese want an apology from the NBA that the NBA is afraid to give. And a Sports Illustrated article is arguing for an end to the NBA's relationship with the country. Ben Shapiro writes, glad to see that the world's most politically active sports league, the NBA, loses all of its nerve the moment dollars are on the line. The mark of true bravery is caving to a fascistic uh, foreign government while proclaiming your bravery for whining about Trump. And finally, National Review points out the NBA managed to get Ted Cruz and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the same side of an issue. Meanwhile, Apple found itself in the crosshairs of Chinese government uh, anger over the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong as well, with a key state media outlet in Beijing accusing the U.S. tech giant of promoting a mapping application for smartphones that helps protesters in Hong Kong evade police. Apple has to think about the consequences of its unwise and reckless decisions, the People's Daily, a mouthpiece paper for the ruling Communist Party in Beijing, warned in an opinion article published on Wednesday. Again, we'll see if another U.S. business kowtows to their uh, requests. Well, the question is, why did the NBA respond as it did to China? Massive audiences, massive profits, an American policy of engagement with no preconditions is essentially the answer. The China situation is troubling, but at the end of the day, there's a responsibility to my owners, says uh, the league uh, commissioner, David Stern. Uh, I have a responsibility to my owners to make money. He may not have known then where his allegiance to the bottom line would lead and the game uh, he helped to grow is now under criticism. To hear him tell it, Stern was intent on turning the NBA into an exporter of American values. Under his leadership, the league began its Basketball Without Borders program, which initially sent NBA players to run basketball camps in geopolitically tense parts of the world. NBA cares, television spots, dominated uh, game breaks. We're going to keep right on showing them, Stern told Sports Illustrated when asked about public annoyance with the frequency of the ads, because social responsibility is extremely important to us, he went on to say. But Stern is still a businessman. Basketball's universal appeal made it an easy international venture, and Stern's tenure as commissioner marked a global explosion of the NBA's brand. In 2013, toward the tail end of his illustrious career, the league announced a unification of its international preseason tours under one banner, the NBA Global Games. Providing fans with an authentic NBA experience is an important part of our efforts to grow the game globally, Stern said in a press release. Well, of all the possible new markets, China has always been the crown jewel. 
a basketball-crazed country deprived of a quality domestic product. China's basketball roots go deep. Mao Zedong was a big supporter, and the People's Liberation Army has long seen the game as a popular pastime. Stern saw the potential, opened the relationship in 87 by offering NBA broadcasts to China their central television for free. But as recent news shows, access to the teeming a Chinese market comes with stipulations that threaten the league's purported commitment to American values. The Chinese backlash against a single tweet sent a Houston Rockets general manager, Daryl Morey, which offered support for pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong, sent shockwaves through the league. In the face of boycott threats from multiple Chinese organizations, the NBA did kowtow and release an initial statement that called Morey's actions inappropriate in its Chinese translation. In fact, from a Chinese dissident who wrote, read both the Chinese version as well as the English, she said the Chinese uh, translation was markedly different and much less uh, pro-democracy than the English version. After American politicians, media figures expressed outrage over the league's response, the commissioner, Adam Silver, backtracked a day later, made a stand for Maury's uh, right to free speech. The Chinese corporate response was swift by Wednesday. Of the 13 Chinese official NBA partners, 11 have ended or suspended their ties with the league. By the way, Nike has pulled their Houston Rockets merchandise from all their Chinese stores. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. And by the way, portions of today's program are brought to you by Zero Res. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. I am delighted that with me in studio for the remainder of most of this hour of today's program, I'm going to talk with the president of Redeeming the Nations, Samuel Hakim. I've mentioned before that Redeeming the Nations is one of the ministries that I uh, support financially. I have such tremendous uh, confidence in the work that they're doing, and I'm just delighted to bring you up to date on some of the work uh, that's going on. And just an overview of uh, Muslims here and across the globe and how God is moving among them. I also want to remind you that the annual Redeeming the Nations Ministries Banquet is coming up, and this is a great opportunity to learn more about the work that they're doing. It's coming up on Sunday, October 13th from 5 to 8 at the Embassy Suites at Washington Square. You'll have an opportunity to hear from Dr. Clark Tanner, who's the Regional Executive Director of the Northwest Region of PastorServe. Um, also, Michael um, uh, Marcos, who's the producer of Redeeming the Nations uh, programming. Uh, you'll hear from Samuel Hakim, the president of Redeeming the Nation. It's just going to be a great uh, time to come together to celebrate what God is doing and to get a better understanding of the challenges that lay ahead. So all of that um, will be enjoyed on Sunday, October 13th. If you're interested in more information, let me encourage you uh, to give them a, a call or um, uh, go to the website, and I'll give you that information in just a few moments. I'm not seeing it right in front of me. First of all, I just want to welcome you, Samuel Hakim. It's always a blessing to have you with us in studio. Thank you, Georgine. It's always a blessing for me to be here with you. I feel the presence of the Lord in the studio, mm. so that's an honor for me. Now, for listeners who are perhaps listening for the first time about our conversation of Redeeming the Nations, give us a brief description of this ministry and what you all do. Uh, this ministry is uh, is used by the Lord, obviously, to reach to the Muslim population, not only in America, but globally. I'm from the Middle East. I was born and raised in Cairo. And when I came here many years ago, I felt that the Lord is telling me that I'm giving you the freedom here that you didn't have back there. So you can share the good news with Muslims. We started with the Middle East because it was my heart 
to reach back to the Middle East. So we thought about it and the Lord told us, no, it's not only the Middle East. You have a lot of Muslims who are moving out of the Middle East globally. They are in Europe, they are in Australia, they are in America, in Canada, in Mexico. And those Muslims need to hear the gospel. And we prayed and prayed and prayed. And we know that Muslims cannot come to a church. If we invite them to a church, the church mostly is not a clean place for them to come. And they are afraid that uh, Christians will make them become Christians. So they are staying away from the church. So the Lord at that time, back in 1996, gave us the idea that we can take the gospel to them. We can take the church into their home. We don't have to invite them to our church. How? Through the media, television. And back in 96, the media was not as popular as we have today. We have more mm-hmm. tools today. So we started in cable access television in America, uh, in Portland, Oregon, back in 96. And shortly after that, start spreading to six other states. By 1998, the Lord opened the door for us to go back to the Middle East through a, a big channel. It's known until today. It's called Sat7. That was broadcasting from London to the entire Middle East and North Africa. Today, we thank God we are in 14 different international satellites broadcasting the gospel in Arabic to reach out to Muslims in Arabic language anywhere they are. We are covering literally every country in the world, in the globe, plus the internet, social media, YouTube, and so on. So the Lord is using the technology that we have today that we didn't have when we started the ministry reach out to Muslims globally, and we see amazing fruits. Mm-hmm. I thank God for it. Absolutely. You know, there's always a redemptive side to whatever uh, technology <laughs> is available, that, that God use it for, uses it for redemptive purposes. And I think what you've described is a perfect example <laughs> of that. A lot of people are concerned about social media. They're concerned about technology and its impact on, uh, on people here in this country. And yet God always uses what's available to us to extend Um, his word out into places where you and I might not be able to go physically and where Muslims can listen in without being overheard, uh, perhaps in the privacy of their home and have an opportunity to satisfy their curiosity in a way that they wouldn't otherwise um, have the opportunity. Uh, We thank God for the technology we have today. One of the names that's given to Satan in the Bible, he's the prince of the air Mm -hmm. Mm. and he's trying to control the air, the airwaves. And we are stealing that from his hands. And I'm, I'm so glad to work where the Lord wants us to work, uh, to use the air, the tool that Satan is using, his dominion, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the entire world. Now, one of the things that I especially appreciate about the programming that Re- Redeeming the Nations produces is that it speaks to the heart of the Muslim world. You address questions in a way that reflects what they're thinking, what misconceptions they might have, questions uh, that they have in a way that's that's very appealing and attractive. Can you describe some of the programming? Because I think that really illustrates um, the beauty of what Redeeming the Nations is producing. We have different programs and each program has different flavor and different formats. We have uh, a magazine format, if you, if you can call it that. Mm-hmm that have multiple uh, little uh, segments uh, like testimony, worship, and uh, uh, Bible teaching, all that in one program. So that's a magazine format, and it's called Turning Point in Arabic language, of course. I'm not competing with Dr. David Jeremiah, (laughs) uh, but it's in Arabic language. And by the way, that's the name in Arabic for our Arabic uh, Facebook site that's reaching out to the Middle East in Arabic language. It's still carrying the same name, Turning Point. 
And uh, we have a different program. It's called uh, Jesus Said, uh, which is a five-minute program. We take one verse of the Red Letter Bible, what Jesus taught, and we comment on it for five minutes. And we know that uh, the attention span is getting mm-hmm. shorter and shorter, so we have kind of a mixed bag. Uh, we have another program that's one minute and a half, uh, talking to the heart of human beings. What pro- problems that human might have, uh, like abortion, gambling, drinking, uh, addiction, uh, child abuse, whatever problem it is. And we take uh, 30 seconds to present the problem in a drama, quick drama, 30 seconds to present the hope in Jesus Christ, 30 seconds, here is the information if you need help, how to contact us. Quick commercial formats, that's going very well. Uh, Another program that's running uh, on the air, and it's running right now on multiple satellites covering America, it's called The Teaching of Christ. This is uh, an interview format. Uh, I interview different speakers, and we take a series going together on The Teaching of Christ, like we took a whole series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, what did Jesus teach? And it's amazing enough that uh, one of the programs, or uh, some of the programs, I was filming in a studio in Egypt. Uh, that was in Ramadan. And, uh, you know, not everyone in the crew are Christians because we have to use some mm-hmm. professionals who are not Christians. So the lighting crew uh, are Muslims. We had three people in the lighting crew who were Muslims. During Ramadan, I had uh, one episode was talking about fasting. What is fasting as Jesus taught? Prayer. What is prayer as Jesus taught? And after I finished those two episodes, the lighting engineer came and gave me a big hug and said, I never heard teaching like that. And he was a Muslim. It was in the month of Ramadan. And he was fasting Ramadan and sitting in the studio listening to it. So before we broadcasted, it's already reached some audience. So praise the Lord. Yes. Uh, Some listeners might imagine that uh, Muslims are hostile to the teachings of Jesus, to the name of Jesus. uh, But they're very open to and interested in what Jesus has to say, because he is uh, a figure that is at least admired, not as the son of God. Um, What kind of response do you get from those who show an interest in what did Jesus actually teach? Uh, Well, our attitude in the ministry, we are not there to degrade Islam or Muslims. And we try to make it a clear distinguish between Islam and Muslims. Those are totally two different things. And we teach what Jesus taught, even if it contradicts openly with the teaching of Islam and the Quran. But in the same time, we have a very high regard and respect and genuine love for Muslims mm-hmm. as human beings created after God's image, redeemed by Christ on the cross. And our goal is to proclaim the good news to them. So I'm sharing some good news with them. I'm not attacking them. Yes. Uh, one of the programs that uh, we broadcast, and it's running on the air right now, uh, it's called The Proof. And The Proof actually is a name taken from the Quran. There is a Quranic verse. Muhammad told them, Ask them to bring the proof. It's talking about Christian and Jews. If they are true. So I said, you want the proof? Here is the proof. And we have two seasons of this program. The first one is a dialogue with a Muslim. The second season is a dialogue with an atheist. And I will talk a little bit later about atheists, why you are focusing mm-hmm. now on people who are atheists and agnostics. Uh, so one time we were filming in Pioneer Square. This program, we filmed it totally outside the studio in the open air. And we want it to be more real to people. We want people to engage with us. And even when we are filming, people come and engage in, in mm-hmm. the production. 
So we were filming in Pioneer Square. And while we were filming, a Somali lady with the hijab on is walking by. She understands Arabic. She listened to us talking in Arabic. So she sat a couple of steps behind our speaker in those steps on Pioneer Square. Yes. And she listened to two full episodes. She listened to the full message for two full episodes. And afterwards, she came forward and she started asking us questions about Christianity. We're talking about Redeeming the Nations. The president of Redeeming the Nations, Samuel Hakim, is with me in studio. I want to remind you that Sunday, October 13th, you'll have an opportunity to learn more for their banquet at the Embassy Suites at Washington Square. We'll give you more details about that in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. With me in studio, Samuel Hakim. He is the president of Redeeming the Nations, uh, a tremendous ministry reaching out to the Muslim world um, from right here and around the globe. So just uh, delighted to have you in studio. Also want to remind you, if you'd like to learn more, and I would encourage you to take advantage of this opportunity. You're going to hear the testimony from someone who has come out of... Um, uh, Islam, uh, as well as others who are involved in this ministry. That's coming up on Sunday, October 13th. The banquet begins at 5 o'clock at Embassy Suites in Washington Square. And there are a couple of ways you can say, yes, I want to come. Uh, the phone number to uh, call is 720-984-8524. 720-984-8524. You can also uh, email for information, info at rtnm.org. That's Redeeming the Nations Ministries, info at rtnm.org. If you're in your car, you don't get all of that down, feel free to call me here at the station or email me here at the station, and I'd be happy to pass that information along to you. I'm looking forward to the 13th uh, being a part of this event, and we'd love to have you come uh, as well. I know there's a great deal of fear, perhaps less so than uh, a decade ago, but there's fear that uh, just numerically Islam is going to overtake virtually every other world religion, including Christianity. What are your thoughts regarding that prospect and how have current events had an impact on the likelihood that Islam is going to continue to spread? Well, Islam will continue to spread. That's normal. And I'm not afraid of the spread of Islam. But uh, there is a huge fear that Islam is going to take over. And the question here, are we reaching them because Jesus died for them and God loves them to come to his kingdom? Do we want to help them to escape the eternal hell? Or we are reaching to them because we are afraid they might take over? Hmm. That makes a huge difference. So what is our motivation? That's the first question. What is our motivation? Uh We need to examine our hearts. Are we motivated by the Great Commission? Uh, Georgine, uh, you are a good friend to me. If uh, if you know that I need a decent suit for the banquet that's coming up, and I cannot afford the prices you have in big uh, stores like Macy's, and you go to the store and you find the suit I like fits good on me and on a very cheap price, in special discount. If you are a good friend, would you tell me? Absolutely. Okay. Because you love me and you know what I need, you share the good news for me. If we love Muslims and we know that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, and we know that without Jesus, they are facing eternity that's not very good. Would we share with them how can they escape that fire? A firefighter who is fighting a house burning, if they know that there is a child inside the house that's inflamed, like what we have seen in Fireproof, would he risk his life to go inside with the training he has to rescue that child who is suffocating with the smoke and inflames inside? Absolutely. That's our responsibility. That's the motivation. 
But let's look at facts. Islam is growing for several reasons. Islam is growing because they are putting everyone in fear. Fear is our biggest enemy. It paralyzes us from sharing the good news, and it gives them opportunity to take more, more territory. Islam is growing because in Islam they can have multiple wives. So they have fast birth rates. Uh, Islam is growing because we have low resistance. And I was sharing with uh, your, um, listening to your program yesterday, and your guest, you share that one of the problems is in Christianity, we are not proactive, we are retroactive. We are lagging in, mm-hmm. in taking advantage of the opportunity. We are lagging in engaging in the need today. So the next generation might come back and curse us because we did not do our job that we can do today. And I pray that the Lord will move us and the next generation will stand up and bless us because we have done our job and we created an environment that we can share Christ with everyone around us. Is Muslim growing uh, as the fastest growing religion in the world? Not really. If we look at the statistics, actually I have a good friend of mine, his name is Rashid from Morocco. He's a Muslim convert and uh, he's working on his master's degree in religious studies. He wrote a book recently called The Future of Islam. I like the information he uh, put it in front of us. Unfortunately, the book until now is not published in English. But I will share some of the information with Please. you. Islam is a religion based on force. That's changing in our time today. Actually, the force of Islam is one of the things the Lord is using to push Muslims out of Islam. Many Muslims, especially the younger generation, they see the violence in Islam, and they say, if this is Allah in Islam, we don't want to follow him. This cannot be a religion from God. And when they go back to their books, they found that Islam is not peaceful, like many people think. Islam is asking people to kill anyone and everyone until they submit to Islam. And by the way, the word of Islam is not surrender to God. It means surrender to your enemy, like you are raising your hand up, I surrender. So Islam is taking over and we surrender. That's the meaning of Islam. It doesn't mean peace like many people think. Mm -hmm. So the younger generation are recognizing that and using the force is driving the younger generation out of Islam. Uh, Islam also is based on the tribe mentality, the community. And even they say openly that the whole world are two camps, Ummat al-Islam and A'da' al-Islam, Baytullah wa Baytul al-A'da'. That means it's, it's basically two camps. Either you believe in Islam and you, you will be in peace with us, or you are not accepting Islam and Muhammad as a prophet and you become to be our enemy. So it's based on the tribe mentality that existed when Muhammad started Islam in the 7th century. Today, with the technology we have, the whole globe is becoming to be one village. Mm-hmm. So you cannot do that anymore. That's working against Muslims. The other thing that's working against Islam is the language. The Quran is written in Arabic language. And Muslims forced Arabic language in many nations because they want to spread Islam. For example, I'm from Egypt. Arabic is not my language. It's not our original language in Egypt. We had the Coptic language that existed before Islam. is still spoken in Coptic Orthodox churches. Mm-hmm. But Islam forced Arabic language on us so they can spread Islam. Today with the internet age, all the young generation are speaking in Latin language. They're writing in Latin language. And even Al-Azhar University, the most prestigious university, Islamic university in the world, it, uh, it's in Cairo, Egypt, they raise their concern and they have conferences to discuss how can we face that challenge 
the Arabic language is dying. How can we spread Islam? Believe it or not, Muslims anywhere in the world, they have to pray and they have to read the Quran in Arabic language. They have to recite it in Arabic language, whether they understand it or not. They just memorize it and recite it. But the Arabic language is dying. That's working against Islam. Uh, I have uh, some information here from uh, the Pew Research that was published a couple of years ago. Of course, I'm going to share it and I have to be very careful because I read the name of the person who prepared the study and he's a Muslim man. His name is uh, Bashir Muhammad. So even if it's done for Pew, but it's done by a Muslim. So we have to be very careful and examine the information. And he's sharing that 23% of Muslims globally are leaving Islam. I'm not saying that they are becoming Christians. And that's a challenge for us who have the good news. 23% of Muslims globally are becoming, uh, are leaving Islam. Many of them are becoming atheists. And we're going to talk about people who are becoming atheists, atheists and agnostic in a little bit, if we have the time to cover that. But also in the research, and this is the part that we have to be careful with, it might have some truth, but it might be exaggerated. He shared that in America, yes, 23% of Muslims in America are leaving Islam, but there is another 23% of non-Muslims are embracing Islam, converting to Islam. Of course, many of those are from the African-American yes. community. That's a big number. Now they are targeting Hispanics, and they have a, a hotline 800 number uh, for Hispanics, they have a whole staff to reach out to Hispanics with Islam. So what is our responsibility in the view of that? Mm. Why 23% of the Muslim community today are converts to Islam? Most of them are from the Protestant uh, faith, evangelical faith. Why? Most likely because they are not aware about the true teaching of Islam. So when Muslims tell them we worship the same God, Allah and God are the same, they believe it. They tell them that Islam is a peaceful religion. They believe it. They tell women that woman is highly respected in Islam. And Islam is honoring women more than any other religion. People believe it. Is it true? How can we uh, counter that? Uh, we offer a lot of workshops, by the way, and seminars to churches to educate the church about Islam and what is the true Islam. Islam. And I would love to share that with any church. Yes. Yeah. We'll uh, return to that in just a few moments, but I do need to take a break. When we return, I'd also like to talk about um, atheism and agnosticism and how that is becoming a fact of those who are stepping away from Islam. And again, the opportunity that presents to those who take the Great Commission seriously. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My guest, Samuel Hakim, President of Redeeming the Nations. The banquet for Redeeming the Nations is coming up on October 13th. And let me encourage you, if you want to learn more and better understand the challenge and the opportunity that the church has been given, this is a great opportunity to do that. You can phone 720-984-8524. You can go to info at rtnm.org for Redeeming the Nations Ministry. Info at rtnm.org. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. I have to tell you, I so enjoy having um, my guest with us here in studio. Um, Samuel Hakim is just an incredible follower of Christ who is committed to sharing the gospel. And I, I'm inspired every time you're with us. One of the things you mentioned when we were talking earlier about programming is that you have programming that is specifically designed to speak to the atheist and the agnostic. Now, that may be surprising to some of our listeners when you're reaching out to Islam. Can you explain um, the fact that as that percentage is stepping away, they're not stepping into another religion. Many of them are stepping out of faith altogether 
and how that's uh, how that's working. Well, if we look around us, we know that the the new generation, the culture around us, is moving to that direction, moving away from God. They might be a little bit uh, spiritual, but they are not religious. So either they are becoming uh, completely anti-God and they reject God completely, or they might think there is a God, but I don't care if he exists or not. It, it doesn't matter to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's in our co- culture here in America, in the West in general. Europe is more than us. Uh, but in the Muslim world, because of the Internet nowadays, they are hearing what our younger generation are saying. And to them, that's becoming to be the new fashion. Many Muslims are rejecting Islam completely. And because they are rejecting Islam, they are rejecting God, the God of Islam, Allah. If, and this is the only God they know. They don't know about the God of love. So what they going to do? They leave Islam and they become atheists. Many of them is not really atheists. They are deists. They are agnostics. Mm-hmm. They believe in a God who created something, but uh, he doesn't care about me. And I don't have to worry about him. So uh, we acknowledged that in our last uh, major program that we have done, the proof, we know that the problem is not Muslims and inviting them to to Christ. In the Middle East, what is encouraging uh, that direction to go uh, quickly, it's a crime if you leave Islam and become a Christian, and that crime can cost you your life. But if you leave Islam and become an atheist or an agnostic, nobody will bother. Hmm. And now it came to the point that they have Facebook pages, Facebook groups, for atheists in the Middle East, openly talking about becoming atheists or agnostics. Uh, So the second season of the proof that we have done is a dialogue with the atheists, how to to share God with the atheists. The new series that we're working on, and we just start filming that, uh, we were addressing that issue. The whole series is going to be at least about 120 episodes. And again, we're going for shorter episodes, uh, but bigger number of episodes because the tension span of the younger generation is getting shorter. And everyone is getting the information now from their uh, cell phone. So we don't want to to put uh, longer programs on TV only. We want to talk to those generation and we know who is our target audience, Mm -hmm. younger generation. While using modern technology like the iPhone and, and YouTube and stuff like that. So we want to address that with them. And the whole series, about 120 episodes, is going around four questions. Does God exist? Does it matter if God exists or not? Can I trust the Bible as the word of God and the information he gives me about God, who God is? And the last question we are dealing with, how can I be in relationship with this God, the creator? So the whole series, is, the whole program is going to talk about God, creation, and uh, we thank God for the beautiful Northwest. All this series is going to be filmed in the Northwest. The biggest chunk of the program is going to talk about evidence, scientific evidence, archaeological evidence, biblical evidence. And then the last part of the program is going to talk about if you heard the evidence, what are you going to do with it? And actually, this is the title of the program. How do you see it? I give you the evidence. And how do you see it? How do you respond? So follow that up at the end of the program with a gospel invitation to share the good news with them. Uh, And we pray that this program will accomplish what God put in our heart to accomplish, bring atheists to Christ. I cannot change everyone, but I have responsibility to proclaim the good news. Yes. I I have a study that suggested that worldwide, 55% of the global population are becoming atheists or agnostics. Can you believe that? Mm. And how can we respond to that? Well, that's the big question. How should we as believers respond? Our culture Mm. tells us, that um, it's insulting to share your faith, to try to persuade someone to think otherwise. It's culturally 
insensitive and so on. And for many in the younger generations, they have come to believe that it's, you know, sharing your faith is not a good idea. Uh, And yet what you've described is a tremendous opportunity. And as followers of Christ, are we going to be obedient to the culture and its way of uh, viewing um, the world? Or are we going to be faithful to the great commission that God has placed on us? What's your response to those who are fearful or who have become convinced that this really is not an acceptable practice to share one's faith and to fulfill the Great Commission? If you care, you share. That's my simple answer. If you care about them and you don't want to see them going to hell, then you have to talk about heaven and how to get to heaven. And as we get older and as we come closer to eternity, I feel that urgency is increasing in my heart. And I see it in Luis Pilau. I'm, I'm officing in Luis Pilau building. I see it in, in, in his heart as well. Uh, Luis stopped by in, in my office today and uh, he prayed for me and, and he encouraged me to continue sharing the good news. So sharing the good news is the only way that we can do it. And uh, Paul in First uh, Corinthians nine sixteen, he mentioned something that's uh, very strong. Woe to me hmm. if I don't evangelize. Woe, and this is coming from God. When God says, woe to you, Samuel, if you don't share the good news, who am I to fear from man? Death, what are they going to do to us? Kill us? That's the easiest part. Because if the grain of wheat does not fall into the ground and dies, it will remain by itself. But if it falls into the ground and dies to itself, it will bring so many uh, wheat, so many fruits to the kingdom of God. And we have to be equipped with this mentality. Like Jesus Christ, he counted death as the way to win us to him. And he gave himself up. Paul counted everything he has as rubbish, Mm -hmm. garbage. Why you are holding on what we have and why you are afraid. They call us lunatic. That's fine. They they say, call us that uh, we are not politically sensitive. That's fine. Islamophobia is another term they use. You are afraid of Muslims. This is Islamophobia. Is it Islamophobia? Of oh, that fear has a reason. Phobia is a disease that has to be treated. But if you have a reason to fear, then you have to deal with the reason that brought fear. That's logic. It's not uh, against us. But again, Georgian, many people are afraid that Muslims is going to take over the whole world. I will share quickly because I know that we are running out of time and we have a lot to cover. Muslims are evangelistic by nature. We are afraid to share with them. Google the internet, you will find that Muslims have a whole website, how to convert Christians to Islam. And I will give you the sheet and I let you see the 10 steps. They call it the 10 commandments of Muslims to convert Christians to Islam. Why you are afraid? They are trying to convert us. Why you are afraid to to respond? Uh, I came across an article that's very encouraging. And this is an article in one of the big outlets, news outlets in Europe. And uh, the title of that article, Muslims Converts Breathe New Life into European Church. Hmm. And Europe has more struggle with uh, immigration and Muslims uh, growing in Europe more than USA. They are ahead in the game. And uh, what is happening? Muslims are coming out of their countries, going to the West because they are pursuing the new dream of freedom and money. But because they are coming out of oppression and they see the freedom and Christians in Europe are sharing the good news. My good friend Stephen Kelly, as we speak today, he is holding a conference in Germany on the border between Germany and um, uh, Astoria to train new Muslim converts how to steadfast in their faith. Mm. Thousands of Muslims, thousands and thousands of Muslims in Europe are coming to the Lord. Where are they going to go? They are going to the church. We think that the church in Europe is dying, but the church in Europe is getting a new influx of Muslim converts coming to the church and bringing life again 
to the church. I pray that we will wake up, share the good news, don't shy, and I pray that we'll see a lot of Muslim converts coming Amen. to our churches here. Amen. Again, Samuel Hakim, president of Redeeming the Nations. The banquet, once again, is coming up on Sunday, October 13th, 5 o'clock p.m. at Embassy Suites at Washington Square. I want to encourage you, if you'd like to learn more, to join us. You can RSVP at 720-984-8524. That's 720-984-8524. You can email info at rtnm.org. That's Redeeming the Nations Ministries. Uh, rtnm.org. Samuel Hakim, thank you so much for joining us. I'm looking forward to the 13th. Thank you, Georgine. We're looking forward to And you're going to MC the whole program and you're going to worship with us. Absolutely. It's uh, going to be a good day. Actually, the whole program is going to be about worship and giving praise to the Lord, joining hands together to, to proclaim the good news. Amen. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. An uh, interesting headline caught my attention earlier today. It was uh, presented by Scalfari. And that may not be a name that's familiar to you. Um, but the headline read, Pope Francis told me that Jesus incarnate was a man, not at all a God. Well, the story was updated um, just recently to include a brief statement from the Vatican, which doesn't deny what uh, Scalfari reported about Pope Francis, only saying it cannot be considered as a faithful account of what was effectively said, but represent more a personal free interpretation of that which he, Mr. Scalfari, heard. I'm not quite sure how that is a clarification, but in the latest edition of La Repubblica, Pope Francis' longtime atheist friend and interviewer, uh, Eugenio Scalfari, claims that the Pope told him that once Jesus Christ became incarnate, he was a man, a man of exceptional virtues, but not at all a God, In quote. And that's allegedly a quote from uh, this longtime atheist friend of Pope Francis. Well, the teaching of the Catholic Church in most Christian churches is that Jesus, the Son of God, was incarnate as fully man and fully God. Well, as the um, Catechism of the Catholic Church states, the unique and altogether singular event of the incarnation of the Son of God does not mean that Jesus Christ is part God and part man, nor does it imply that he is the result of a confusing mixture of the divine and the human. He became truly man while remaining truly God. Now, this is a mystery to us. But this is what the scriptures teach, and this is what the Catholic Church in its catechism teaches. Jesus Christ is true God and true man. During the first centuries, the church held had, a def, had to defend, rather, and clarify this truth of faith against the heresies that uh, falsified it. Uh, now, according to, and that's from Catholic Doctrine 484. Now, according to the highly respected Catholic blog uh, and radio Speda in Italy, Scalfari states in an uh, edition of his uh, publication, uh, the following, those who, as it has happened many times with me, have had the luck of meeting him and speaking to him with the greatest culture, cultural intimacy, know that Pope Francis conceives Christ as Jesus of Nazareth, man, not God incarnate. Once incarnate, Jesus stops being a God and becomes a man until his death on the cross. Well, Scalfari continues, when I had the chance of discussing these sentences, Pope Francis told me they are the proven proof that Jesus of Nazareth, once having become a man, was, though a man of exceptional virtues, not God. 
In March of 2018, in an interview the Pope uh, with Scalfari, the Pope reportedly said, there is no hell, there is the disappearance of sinful souls. Well, that interview caused an uproar, and the Vatican claimed that what the Pope reportedly said was a reconstruction and not quoted. The Vatican didn't deny that Scalfari's uh, reported, but said it could not be considered as a faithful transa- transcription of the words of the Holy Father, end quote. Well, the Pope himself never denied what Scalfari reported, and the article never ran a correction or remove the article from its website. Commenting on this latest revelation, um, uh, Rorat Sell, another publication, said, now, obviously, as it has often happened with Francis in formal interviews um, with Eugenio Scalfari, some will try to deny the veracity of what Scalfari, a seasoned journalist, affirms. Let us just recall for the record of events that there is no reason to doubt its general accuracy, We are way past the time of doubting the general accuracy of the Scalfari quotes. Uh, Not now that the papal interviews with Scalfari have been published on the Vatican website, that they have been occasionally published by the Vatican Publishing House itself, for instance, as part of the book uh, To the Right. I'm not sure what that is, but well, in a statement issued earlier this month, it was reported by Church Militant in Rome. The Vatican says, uh, as has been affirmed in other occasions, the words of the Dr. Eugenio Scalfari attributes between quotes of the Holy Father during his uh, colloquies um, held with him cannot be considered as a faithful account of what was effectively said, but represent more a personal and free interpretation of Uh, which he heard as appears entirely evident from what was written today concerning the divinity of Jesus Christ, end quote. Well, church militants Michael Voris commented uh, that is the relevant part of the statement, and it uh, in itself is now creating its own firestorm because it does not actually deny Scalfari's characterization, merely hinting at the possibility. Likewise, it does not affirm in any fashion that Pope Francis does indeed hold the divinity of Christ during our Savior's earthly ministry, uh, Voris goes on to say. So again, it seems like with some regularity I receive and read accounts of things that the Pope has said that are either misinterpreted, reinterpreted, or affirmed, this being the latest uh, somewhat troubling that isn't flatly denied by the Vatican. And then there's this, uh, Senate Fathers called for an ecological con- uh, conversation or a conversion that would allow people to see the gravity of sins against the environment as sins against God, against our neighbor, and against future generations. That's according to Vatican News reporting on Wednesday. Participants in this Vatican Senate at the uh, on the Amazon region proposed adding sins against the environment to lists of traditionally recognized sins in their second day of discussion and deliberation. This would imply a need to produce and spread more widely a theological literature that would include ecological sins alongside traditional sins, according to their report. Well, the working document of the Amazon Synod frames the entire question of the church's renewal in the region in terms of the environment, proposing new paths for the church and for an integral ecology. In order to be ever more um, synodal, the church must listen to the peoples and to the earth by coming into contact with the abundant reality of an Amazon full of life and wisdom, but also of contrasts, the text goes on to say. It continues with the cry that is provoked by destructive deforestation and extract extra activist activities, and that demands an integral ecological conversion, it says. Well, again and again, the document directs Synod members to turn their attention to the cries of the earth and to convert. (coughs) This is not a biblical concert, although we are called to be stewards over the earth. The aggression towards this vital zone of Mother Earth 
and its inhabitants threatens their substance, uh, their culture and their spirituality, it proclaims. It also affects the life of all humanity, particularly the poor, the excluded, the marginalized, the persecuted. The present situation calls urgently for an integral ecological conversion. Well, the culture of the Amazon, which integrates human beings with nature, constitutes a benchmark for building a new paradigm of integral ecology. It goes on finally to declare. So elevating sins against God and sins against mankind to include the notion of sins against the environment for which uh, from which one needs to be um, converted is a concept that's being seriously debated in this synod, uh, apparently. Now, they mention the marginalized, the persecuted um, the poor, um, the excluded, and so on, focusing on those individuals, on those groups, uh, it seems to me, also ought to be a priority. Interesting look at what's going on in some elements of the um, of the Catholic Church. Well, the uh, District of Columbia is abolishing Columbus Day, or at least that's the uh, the effort that they're involved in. On Tuesday, the D.C. City Council approved a measure to abolish the celebration of Columbus Day. It's set to take place on the 14th of October. The holiday uh, will be replaced by Indigenous Peoples Day. The council fast-tracked the legislation by calling an emergency session. With all the problems in D.C., one would think they'd have other reasons for emergency sessions. But the District of Columbia was named after Christopher Columbus and bears numerous monuments and tributes to his legacy, including a large statue in front of the Union Station, a famous train hub in the heart of the city. And um, as the author of the new book, The War on History, The Conspiracy to Rewrite America's Past, wrote in 2017, Columbus isn't the villain the left depicts him as. Uh, Stepman's original article points this out. Is this the last time we can celebrate Columbus Day? Again, the book published in 2017. Christopher Columbus, the Italian explorer credited with discovering America and his legacy, are under attack figuratively and increasingly literally. Several Columbus monuments have been attacked and vandalized around the country. The towering Columbus statue at Columbus Circle in New York City now heeds, now needs 24-hour guards after Mayor Bill de Blasio put it in the list of uh, the the uh, commission to review offensive memorials. And according to um, the far left watch, a watchdog organization, Antifa and other left wing groups plan to deface and attack Columbus statues across the country on Columbus Day. Again, the 14th. And it's um, it is unfortunate to see what was once a uniting figure who represented American courage, optimism, even immigrants is suddenly in the crosshairs for destruction. A few historians and activists began to attack Columbus' legacy in the 20th century. They concocted a new narrative of Columbus as a rapacious pillager and a genocidal maniac. Historian Howard Zinn, we've talked about him here on the program, in particular had a huge impact on changing the minds of a generation of Americans. It wasn't just Columbus who was a monster, according to Zinn. It was the driving ethos of the civilization that ultimately developed the uh, uh, in the wake of the discovery, the United States, which in and of itself, according to this line of thinking, was wrong for uh, from the very beginning. Behind the English invasion of North America, Zinn wrote, behind their massacre of Indians, their deception, their brutality was the special power drive born in civilizations based on private profit. Well, the truth is that Columbus set out for the New World thinking he would spread Christianity to regions where it didn't exist. And while Columbus and certainly his Spanish benefactors 
had an interest in the goods and gold. He would uh, he could return from what they thought was Asia. The explorer primarily was motivated by his religious faith. This conviction that God destined him to be an instrument for spreading the faith was far more potent than the desire to win glory, wealth, and world honors. That's what historian Samuel Eliot Morrison over a half a century ago wrote. In fact, as contemporary historian Carrie Carol Delaney noted, even the money Columbus sought was primarily dedicated to for religious purposes. Delaney said in an interview with the Catholic fraternal organization, the Knights of Columbus, every uh, everybody knows that Columbus was trying to find gold, but they don't know what the gold was for to fund a crusade to take Jerusalem back from the Muslims before the end of the world. A lot of people at the time thought that the apocalypse was coming because of all the signs, the plague, famine, earthquakes, and so forth. And it was believed that before the end, Jerusalem had to be back in Christian hands. So the Christ could return in judgment. Well, Columbus critics don't just stop at accusing him of greed. One of the biggest allegations against him is that he waged a genocidal war and engaged in acts of cruelty against indigenous people in the Americas. But historians like Delaney have debunked these claims. Rather than cruel, Columbus was mostly benign in his interactions with native populations. While deprivations did occur, Columbus was quick to punish those under his command who committed unjust acts against local populations. Columbus strictly told the crew not to do things like maraud or rape and instead to treat the native peoples with respect. There are many examples of his writings or in his writings where he gave instructions to this effect. Most of the time when injustices occurred, Columbus wasn't there. Uh, There were terrible diseases that got communicated to the natives, but he can't be blamed for that. Columbus certainly wasn't a man without flaws or attitudes that would be unacceptable today. But even as a man of an earlier age in which violence and cruelty were often the norms between different cultures and peoples, Columbus didn't engage in the savage acts that have been pinned on him. And so as Washington, D.C., District of Columbia, uh, endeavors to change the celebration of Columbus Day, after which it was named, the figure anyway, um, a better and clearer understanding of the character behind it would probably be um, a benefit to all. All right. Uh, Coming up, we're going to talk with Rachel Gresler. She's a research fellow in economics and budget and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. The United, um, I always want to say the United Arab Emirates, but the United Auto Workers strike against General Motors has continued. I believe we're into the fourth week. She suggests that what's happening in the length of this strike is an indication of the declining power of unions. We'll talk with her about that in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, if you've been watching, the United Auto Workers have continued their strike against General Motors. My next guest points out that this uh, really points to the declining power of unions. Corruption, other factors are weighing in on this as well. Uh, Rachel Gresler joins us. She's a research fellow in economics, budget and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation to bring us the latest. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Georgine. Now, what are we in week four of this um, uh, UAW strike? Yes, it's been going on, I think, 24 days now. And really, there are two issues. One is the to increase their uh, wages and then to create some sort of a path for those who work part-time to eventually work full-time. Are those the two major issues? Yes, that's how I understand it. Um, the problem here, though, with the union trying to push GM 
to make these changes is that the union is assuming that it knows the business's operations and it knows what is affordable, and that's simply not the case. The union officials are sitting there attending to their business, which in some cases has involved corruption and fraud, and it's the people that are running GM that know best what they're able to afford and how they can make the company efficient and productive, and in doing so, to grow the company so that it can actually offer more jobs and higher compensation. Um, It's not the union that should be in charge of this. Now, you were quoted in an article on Fox Business in which you make the point that essentially these um, union leaders oftentimes have to justify their existence, so sometimes they'll push something that may not be in the best interest of the workers and may not be possible from the standpoint of the business owners. Exactly. So there was a point in time in the U.S. when unions were very important and they played a you know critical and beneficial role to workers, but we're not at that point anymore. And there are plenty of laws that protect workers and there's the free market, there's global competition that forces companies to be competitive in what they're offering workers. And the bottom line is that a lot of unions simply don't have much to offer workers anymore. And so they do things like try to push for higher compensation, tell the workers we need you to strike so that we can get these bigger benefits. And, you know, bottom line, the union spending 36% of the dues that it takes in to actually represent the workers, and it's spending other money on, you know, lobbying and corruption. And so it's not actually providing any real service to the workers. And in some cases, it's hurting them because it's forcing GM to raise their prices. When you raise your prices, you sell fewer cars. You know, dozens of GM manufacturers have shut down across the U.S. and tens of thousands of workers have lost their jobs. That's not helping the GM workers to just drive companies out of business. In fact, you point out that the arrival of foreign automakers coupled with union workers' demands led to the downfall of the big three automakers, GM, Ford, and Fiat Chrysler. Absolutely, because before the the union had a monopoly with the big three automakers and they could drive prices up. And at the time of their collapse around 2008, those workers were receiving $73 per hour in compensation. And that compared to about $36 per hour for um, foreign manufacturers in the U.S. So about twice as much in total compensation costs. That's just not a sustainable structure. And so something had to give. Unfortunately, a lot of those costs kind of already sunk in the promised pension and retiree health benefits. And so it's just really hard to dig out of those costs. And instead of trying to just get compensation higher and higher and actually raise costs more and have more people lose their jobs, the union should be really looking at better ways that they can shift the compensation, that they can try to cover those past costs and create a situation where GM can grow and can provide more jobs and higher incomes. Well, let's talk about the unions themselves. Um, the, the fact that they are um, they're seeing decline uh, in their membership, uh, unemployment is record low, the dues that these uh, members play and so on, and corruption, which is another issue that you bring up in, um, in your discussion on this subject. Talk a bit about the unions and the challenge they face to try to survive in a, an environment that they're not as useful as perhaps they once were. Yeah, they do have a challenge. And instead of you know trying to shift, what do they do for the workers? Um, how do they provide them with a benefit that's valuable? They're clinging to the things of the past. And as a result, they're seeing a decline when they're able to. Part of the problem and part of the reason that membership is even where it still is today is that unions kind of have a government monopoly in their ability to be the only negotiator for a certain employer. 
And so workers can't go to their boss themselves. They can't have some type of outside counsel represent them. If they want to negotiate with their employer and it's a union-run shop, the only place they have to go is through that union. And in the forced union states, you know, the ones that are not right to work where workers can't choose, if you want to work for a company, you have no choice but to join that union to pay those dues. And for auto workers, we're talking about 500 to to $1,000 a year off of a pretty middle-wage salary. That's a big cost and not something that most workers want to sacrifice if they're not really getting anything out of it, which they aren't anymore. And in some cases, people are losing their jobs as a result of the unions. Let's talk about corruption. Um, one example, two former United um, Auto Workers uh, leaders are cooperating with federal investigation into the union president, Gary Jones, for embezzlement. Is that an exception? Is this uh, common? And is there uh, widespread corruption within uh, union leadership? Unfortunately, I think that the corruption really is quite widespread, and it's part of what I described before is they have this essential monopoly, and so they're not held accountable for their actions because those dues come in. You know, they don't have to sell themselves to anybody. They simply collect the dues as long as the person is working there, and they're just not, you know, held to those standards anymore. And so it's not just the UAW. It's across other private sector unions, and it's even pretty rampant in government unions. So what's the solution? You mentioned right-to-work laws in some states that have been enacted. That's not certainly the case all across the country. What's the solution for those uh, auto workers, or is there one, given the structure that we currently have with government-sanctioned and government-granted monopoly for unions? I mean, the one federal thing that could help is if the government said, look, you have the right to choose who's going to represent you. That can be your union, that can be yourself, that can be an outside group. Um, short of that, a lot of these workers, especially in the forced union states, are in a pretty tough place. And instead of trying to free things up, Congress, particularly in the House, led by the Democrats, is trying to pass legislation that would force more people into unions and strengthen the unions instead of giving workers more rights. How much longer do you see this uh, conflict with UAW continuing? I mean, given the fact that it's already drug on for several weeks, any light at the end of this uh, very long tunnel? You know, I would think that it's it's got to end within the next week or two. If you think about these workers who are only getting $250 a week in strike pay, you know, some of them are not even able to afford groceries anymore, less yet your rent or mortgage. Um, you know, I think that eventually the union is probably going to have to give here that they can't force GM to do something that is going to be unaffordable in the long run. And that's not what the workers should want either, because it just ends up that many of them are going to lose their jobs or these factories are going to have to shut down entirely. And so all of the authority for negotiating uh, the terms of this unsettlement at this point is given to the union and individual workers have no way of going around that or trying to negotiate in their own interest or to accept uh, what GM may be offering. No, and they can't even go in and say, hey, I really need to be able to pay my bills this month or I'm going to get kicked out of my house. Can I start working? They're prohibited from doing that. Well, we'll certainly watch with interest what happens over the next several days. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks, Georgine. Really appreciate it. Again, Rachel Gressler is a research fellow in economics, budget, and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show on this Thursday afternoon. 
There was an interesting commentary on CNS News um, regarding government hostility toward religion and what the cost would be if the government moves in that direction. As you know, there are some questions before the Supreme Court right now that have broad implications for religious liberty, and that has been an ongoing theme throughout the country and across culture. Well, to the surprise of absolutely no one outside of the political class in Sacramento, California, a majority of residents in that state have already or are seriously considering fleeing that state. We know that's a a story that's not difficult to understand. Well, a recent poll uh, by the UC Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies found more than half of Californians surveyed had considered leaving. The most common reasons cited were housing costs, high taxes, and the political climate. Now, while those three factors are inexorably linked, they share another common connection, possibly overlooked, that if allowed to flourish, could help alleviate the state's fiscal crisis, and that is religious liberty. Now, in this commentary, they point out that by embracing the role of religion in a free society, instead of seeking to confine it to the hearts, minds, pulpits, and pews of the faithful, California might stem the flow of people, jobs, and revenue to other states. Well, much of the tax burden borne by Californians is allocated toward dealing with social ills that churches, ministries, faith-based nonprofits are dedicated to relieving. Poverty, homelessness, addiction, to name a few. The political climate there, however, expressed by the California legislature is overtly hostile to people of faith. Making the connection to our cultural ills and the role that the church is uniquely designed to play. Well, the recently passed ACR 99 requested religious leaders and those with moral influence, in quotes, to abandon two millennia of Judeo-Christian doctrine on human sexuality and gender and affirm behaviors most religious faiths eschew. Well, this after a controversial bill just last year labeled some religious viewpoints on human sexuality as consumer fraud. Hmm. Welcoming and tolerant California is not. Um, but while California may be the nation's leading exporter of prosperity, it's not alone in failing to recognize the economic short-sightedness of religious hostility. You might recall, it's been a few years ago now, but the Family Research Council um, did, uh, I'm sorry, sorry, the Oregon Family Council did a survey on the value that churches and religious faith um, bring to a particular community. And those numbers are really very impressive. Well, the commentary goes on. In major cities and small towns all over the nation, government officials are opposing churches and faith-based organizations and their attempts to serve local communities, often due to a mistaken notion of lost revenue because of the tax-exempt status of these ministries. In Magnolia, Texas, which is a suburb of Houston, Texas, the city council imposed a new set of water rates for churches and nonprofits, nearly tripling their cost of water in order to recoup lost revenue because the city is prevented from taxing their property. So they're coming uh, through the back door, coming up with other ways to raise revenue. In the village of Walt Hill, Nebraska, government officials have denied building permits to Light of the World Gospel Ministries, who purchased property in the crumbling downtown area to build a new church and other facilities to breathe life, spirituality, and economically uh, to benefit a dying community. In Joseph, Oregon, right here at home, Point of Connection Ministries that provides transformational housing, counseling, job training for men seeking to transition back into society face similar obstruction from county government related to zoning ordinances. In a place where winter can be deadly, this ministry was nearly forced to close its doors to men in need of shelter. In Dallas, Texas, Congregation Taurus Chain uh, spent over five years entangling in municipal red tape over a certified 
uh, or certificate rather of occupancy the uh, for a house of a local rabbi, the leader of the small Orthodox Jewish community. He simply wanted to host his fellow congregants in his home for worship. The final bureaucratic hurdle requiring a specific number of parking spaces for an Orthodox Jewish congregation that on the Sabbath, when the rabbi's home would have uh, the most visitors, abstain from driving. Hmm. Well, in these and other cases, um, First Liberty Institute has been fighting for the rights of Americans of all faiths to live accordingly. There are other organizations as well, like Alliance Defending Freedom, who do the same. A common value shared if um, uh, by many, if not all faiths, is to care for those in need. When people of faith are free to live out their beliefs in all aspects of their lives, as the First Amendment guarantees, they inevitably seek to make life better for Others. Well, these benevolent efforts reduce the strain on government resources. A 2012 study by Dr. Rodney Stark at Baylor University found the savings of taxpayers nationwide from benevolent actions of religious people and organizations totaled over $2 trillion per year. More recent global studies show a correlation between religious freedom and prosperity of nations. Our nation is founded on the idea that the purpose of government is to protect the God-given rights of the people. Rights not given by the state, but rather given by God himself. The founders knew that people of faith, of all faiths or no faith, would benefit by the beneficent zeal of a religiously diverse society. If those in positions of power today are unmoved by the constitutional arguments to protect religious liberty, maybe the economic benefits might be more persuasive. It simply makes dollars and cents California, it seems, could use a lot more of both. My guess is they won't get the message, and that is a sad commentary for our most populous state. Well, as I've mentioned uh, throughout the week, tomorrow I'm going to be at a women's retreat. I'm looking forward to that, hanging out with my sister and my mom. We'll share the best of the Georgine Rice Show. And as for the following week, it is a complete mystery to me, as James Blind has not yet given me all the details. I can tell you we will be talking with Michael Barone, who we'd scheduled earlier this week for a conversation. He had to um, step aside. I believe he was ill. His book is How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. We'll uh, take that conversation up on Thursday. And as for the rest of the week, well, you'll just have to wait with the rest of us to find out what that may or may not include. So look forward to filling you in on that uh, next week. want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night and, for that matter, a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.